After hundreds of interviews and thousands of hours of research, we're excited to share with you our first book, The Greater Good, Life Lessons from Hawaii's Leaders, with a special forward from Mayor Mufi Hanneman. The Greater Good is a collection of personal stories and quotes from over 70 of the leaders we've interviewed. The Greater Good will make you laugh, make you cry, and will inspire you to live a greater good life. Available at bookstores statewide and at greatergoodbooks.com. Tonight is December 6, 2005, and this is Evans Journal coming to you live from Honolulu, Hawaii. This is part two of the Guy Kawasaki lecture slash panel with Guy Kawasaki, who's the CEO of Garage Technology Ventures. The panel was at University of Hawaii in the Architecture Building, and Guy was invited by Bill Richardson, who is a professor at UH and also a venture capitalist with HMS Hawaii Management Partners. And what I wanted to do was to play the audio from tonight for you, and you guys can get a chance to hear it. I, I know it's a bit longer, but I think it's definitely worth it. He has a different perspective, somewhat controversial, but nonetheless, it's uh, somewhat entertaining. Okay, the audio quality I need to mention to you is not very good. The audio quality is from my handheld Ederol R1 with the internal microphone. So basically I was sitting in the front row and recording this and most of the recording was coming off the speakers. So I did what I could to it, but if it sounds too bad for you to listen to, maybe just don't listen to it. Okay, so here it is, Guy Kawasaki. Jackson. Oh, hi Guy. My name is Jackson. Um, just now you say um the MBA student not content to run restaurants business because, um, but I'm exception. I want to run a chain restaurant uh, chain, and so I might not have plenty X return. But um, do you have any advice for me, like a Japanese ramen chain restaurant? Okay, so thank you. So I'm not for you because I'm not a retail beastie, right? Okay, so have you ever been to London? No. Okay, so you gotta go to London. If you're gonna do what you're gonna do, you gotta go to London. Because in London there's a restaurant. Anybody here been to London? Okay, so did any of you eat at a restaurant called Wagamama? No? You did? Okay, so tell me what you think of Wagamama. It's probably an industrial, I guess. Right. It's a real long table all together, very social. Right. So yeah, so Wagamama is sort of this minimalist restaurant. And they have like five or six in London. And they only serve ramen. Or, you know, maybe 20 kinds of ramen, but essentially ramen, right? And it's these long tables that you sit wherever you sit. And it is like, I spent six weeks in London during the dot-com phenomenon. And the only business that I saw that I thought would be successful in the United States was Wagamama. There was, you know, the cell phone technologies where if the cell phone knew that you were passing near the body shop, you would get this MMS message that says, oh, you're near a body shop. We can give you a 10% discount on avocado soap right now. I mean, like, I just saw the dumbest ass business in the world. <laughs> but you walk into Guatemala and you say, this is how a restaurant should work. So, this is all for me to tell you that, although I'm a technology venture capitalist, there may very well be a venture capitalist who wants to help someone of your 
grand vision of having 200 water bottles around the world. You know, Rocky Aoki too, right? Benihana. Okay, so, but you need to communicate that that's your dream as opposed to going to a venture capitalist and saying, I want to open up a noodle shop and I need $200,000. That's not what you're trying to do. Venture capitalists, a technology venture capitalists are going to turn you down anyway because you know, they don't do restaurants, but there are people who fund retail and restaurants who would be interested in that. Now, for you to do that, you know, you have to have you have to have some kind of story that makes them believe that you can create one and then scale it. And I don't know if, you know, it would be helpful if Rocky Aoki were your advisor, because he could say, you know, Rocky Aoki, my advisor, he built 500 Benihanas around the world, and he's advising me and he's investing. Or you could say that, you know, your father is the chef who trains all the chefs for the Ritz-Carlton restaurants around the world, so he truly will taught me how to scale. You gotta come up with a great story. The story cannot just be that, you know, I worked at Canning's and I love to eat noodles. That ain't gonna You need a story. You gotta give people a reason to want to give you millions of dollars. And just being a pleasant young guy isn't enough. <coughs> yes. Faculty? Questions? Ah. I spent about two months in China. Yeah. A lot of Chinese technology uh, can ask me, do you have people in Hawaii from your business school to help us package our company so that we can go to Hawaii you know? So I think that Hawaii, you know, Because Honolulu is not a financial center. I mean, 
it may be geographically halfway to New York, but you know, planes can fly over Hawaii and get to New York without landing here. Um, so I just, I, that's the question. The question is why Hawaii? I mean, if you told me that you know the University of Hawaii Law School or the East West Center Law School had the foremost faculty and translating the intellectual property and corporate finance issues of China into the American common law system. And so there's this great expertise of how to do that. Okay, that's a saleable story. But I don't know, is it true? I don't know. I don't know. But it, it, you know, you need a story of that magnitude. Just like he needs a story of, you know, Rocky Aoki's backing him and his father was the head of all chefs for Ritz-Carlton Hotel. He can't just say, I like to eat noodles. And, and this story cannot be that, uh, I know some people in China, they're looking for liquidity. It's got to have some compelling reason. Because if, if, if a company in China is truly active, I can assure you that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch and CSFB will definitely fly over there. They have this great story about these big New York bankers and they can call these pension funds and you know whatever. So how are you going to compete with that story if you're from Hawaii? I don't know. So you need a real compelling story. Uh, what I what I would add to what Guy's saying is, is you know we really have to understand that Hawaii is operating in a global marketplace. And just because we have a million smart people here doesn't mean that you know there's not a million smart people all over the world that are doing many, many, many more things that have much more experience in doing these kinds of things than we have. So you need a compelling story. Greg, you got a couple of questions? You wanna ask one? Greg Kim? Me? Yeah. No, you. Yes. Uh, 
So I, I mean, I've worked in the Valley before in software development. I'm here, and so I say, I take your advice and go back. Um, what should I look for in terms of like companies that are making pitches to me to work for them? I mean, because I've been burned before, what are the red flags that you would say, all right, look out for these things if you choose to work for this startup or that startup? Um, what are good things to look for? How old are you? 32. Uh, what do you do? Uh, software development uh, pro programming. And I've, I've worked there before during the boom. Do you have kids? None. Are you married? No. Take any job. <laughs> but I... <laughs> I don't mean to be, yeah, I do mean to be facetious, but um, I guess what I'm saying is that uh, I get this question a lot, and not just in Hawaii, but everywhere, from people who are you know, just graduating from school or just out of school, and they believe that they need to make the absolute optimal job selection, because this this first or second job, you know, whatever, it might not be first or second for you, but other people, is going to determine the rest of their lives. And so, so here are some scenarios, right? So let's say, knock on wood, you get to be the, you get recruited by a bunch of people you went to school with, and they happen to start the next Google. So you're like, you know, employee number 10 of the next Google. And Six years later, you're now worth $200 million, right? Hallelujah, Steve Case is calling you up right now. And, and you know, this, this business school is now renamed your business school. <laughs> and so, and so, so people might look at that and say, thank God you made the right decision. Pick the company that made him a $200 million person. Okay, so that's one extreme. The other extreme is you work, you join a startup, and this company just implodes. Dumbass management, stupid product, no market, whatever it was, it just implodes. And the CEO is freaking out, and he has a hard time, or she has a hard time firing people, and the board is just breathing down his neck, and it's ugly, and there's sexual harassment lawsuits, and he's just, everything is going wrong in the company. And you think, oh my God, I made the worst possible decision. This decision is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. And I'll never be able to dig out from under this situation. Those are the two extremes. I would make the case that over the long course of your life, that if you made the so-called mistake of working for the company that imploded, the way I described, you will learn more. And it will be more valuable. I would make the case on the other side. If you went to work for the next Google and you made $200 million after five years, you, for the rest of your life, you're messed up. Because for the rest of your life, you're going to try to find something as good as that. And it never happens again as good as that. And for the rest of the life, you're going to believe that you caused that success. When in fact, you were just dumb shit lucky. <laughs> So when you believe you call that success, you're going to carry yourself in a certain way, you're going to have these expectations, you're going to raise your kids in a certain way, they're going to have to go pull a hole in the harbor, <laughs> and, and there's going to be all these issues, and you're going to be unhappy, and you're going to marry, you know, some woman that your parents don't like, 
And here the buyer of BMW, you're gonna go to like France for vacation and all that. And then like one day you're gonna wake up and you're gonna realize it was all just a game. The other guy who did the wrong thing and got smacked around and laid off, this person has seen management at its stupidity. This person has seen the pain of laying people off. This person has seen the waste of corporate funds. This people has seen the, the transgression of ethics. And you observed all that and you learned from all that. That will make you a better person. So I believe, this is a long answer to a short question, I believe that fundamentally you almost can't go wrong in the jobs that you do. Not, you may, I'm not saying don't give it any thought, but I'm saying fundamentally, let's say you pick the Google one. Hey, you're worth $200 million. How bad could that be? Okay, so we, we established that that could be a good thing, right? We have to more address the other one where you make the quote-unquote mistake. I believe from that quote-unquote mistake, you will learn a lot that will help you in your next and next and next job. And ultimately, it will make you a better human being. So you'll either be a rich human being over here and believe you're happy, or you'll be a better human being over here and really be happy. Both are not, both are not bad outcomes. Take it easy, relax. I, when I left Stanford, my father <coughs> and, and when I left Stanford, see this was the middle of the 70s. And in the middle of the 70s, you know, Asian Americans, you were the first generation to go to college for my family. You know, my father wanted me, right, to be a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist, basically. And I looked at that and I said, man, you know, I don't want to stick my hand in people's mouths. <laughs> I don't want to stick my hand in people's orifices at all. There goes doctor and dentist. Solving other people's problems. Right, so now the only thing is left is sticking your hand in people's affairs. So I went to law school. I went to law school for 20 days and quit. <laughs> I couldn't stay in law school because in law school, like the professors were like telling me that your mind is just crap and I'm going to remake your mind. I just couldn't handle that at that stage. And so I called my parents and I said, I can't stand law school, I'm going to quit law school. And I thought, you know, I was going to get disowned. I thought, you know, 3,000 generations of my family had worked to get me from, you know, sugar cane to you know, law school. I should just commit suicide. But to my father and mother's great credit, they said, you know, it's fine. I mean, you know, as long as you do something great with your life. I said, well, now you tell me. So, anyway, so, so, you know, I made probably the worst mistake, right? So I, I dropped out of law school. I quit. Asian American, you quit something. And it's a boot and die. <laughs> so, and I look back at that time and I said, well, that was the smartest thing I ever did because, you know what? Most lawyers take 20 years to decide their miserable practice. <laughs> I did that in 20 days. <laughs> See how smarter I am? So, so this, all of this is to tell you that, you know, I mean, I don't think you should go and decide that you're going to be a drug dealer because guys said, take any job. <laughs> but can I tell you that, you know, if you went to work for HP versus Google, you're making a tragic mistake because Google is hot and HP is cold? You might make that case, right? But I would make the case that Google right now is at the peak of its sort of 
pride. It's, it's hot. It's smoking hot. It can do no wrong. Whereas HP is sort of old and it has to be reversed and pull itself back. You might learn more from the HP experience where you have to really fight for everything, every piece of market share, every printer sale, every everything, with adults supervising you. Then to be at Google, where at Google you think that every time you just say, I am guy from Google, the world goes, we're not worthy, we're not worthy. <laughs> so that's a very long answer to say. Chill out. Yeah. So I'll give you. Okay, so that's that's the the negative way of looking at it. The positive way is the way you pick your job is you can do it on a combination or either or ways. The people you meet at whatever company you really like, them. you really like them. Just purely emotional, you like them. You don't know why exactly, but you like them. That's one good reason. A second good reason is the product that they want you to work on or the service you really love. For me, with Macintosh, it was a twofer. Because I met the people and I was so impressed with them. I was blown away by how smart they were. I thought I was the stupidest person in the Macintosh division. Okay? I was blown away by all those mainline olives. And the second thing is, I looked at that mainline olive product and I said, my God, this is the future of technology. This is just so cool. You could, you could, I would pay you to work at the Macintosh division. So if you get interviewed by a company and you see the product and the product just sucks you in and you just love it and you just can't get it out of your head and you think it's just the greatest thing and you're going to kick ass and change the world with it, go work for that company. Or if you meet with a company and you just love the people and you think you can learn so much from them, go work for that company. And if you can find a company that has both, my God, go work for that company. Okay? Probably more than you ever wanted to hear. <laughs> Well said. <laughs> Others? As far as like undergraduate and MBA, are there any other skill sets you recommend online besides the software? No, I, I don't think much more. I mean, that's as good as it gets. You know, understand that the hard part of business is the soft stuff, not the science stuff. And then you just you just have to pay your dues. It's uh, I mean, uh, one of the problems is. When I was your age, and you know, I attended things like this, I hope you don't think I believed what the people up here were saying. <laughs> so I don't expect you really to be believing me either. So, but I think what you'll find is that it's true what we're saying. It may take you 30 years to figure it out. It's taken me 30 years to figure out how right my parents were. Um, and so, it, it, you know, maybe I can, if I could just soften you up to even consider that I might be right, I will have accomplished what I want to accomplish. Yeah, I, I have a take on that too. I, I used to tell people, this is probably four years ago when I got that question, that you should go and get a PhD in one of the applied sciences. And you know, not everybody can do that, but you know, Maybe the second thing to do is to go learn about people and learn what drives other people and how you can help drive and lead other people. So that's, that's, that, that's my take on that. I would give a third. If you're going to get that practical, you should learn how to speak in public. Actually, I'll give you a fourth. Now it's getting hard. You should learn how to speak so you're very comfortable. 
they're not maybe as comfortable as we are, because we might be too comfortable. <laughs> but you should be very comfortable. And the third thing is you need to learn to write. And, and if you would just learn to write a one-page memo, I believe you would be ahead of 95% of people in the world. Just one page. You don't need to write a book. Just be able to do everything in one page. So if you can write in one page and speak for 20 minutes and hold people's attention, you'll be ahead of 99% of the people that you compete with. Last question? We can go on. Okay. Long as the piece is over. <laughs> I, so I couldn't get what you said. So how do you do your own personal investing? Do you do it yourself? Do you rely on someone else? Oh, my own personal investing? Um, we have a financial advisor who does uh, a lot of our personal investing. And I don't, you know, I, I don't want you to think that I'm really filthy rich so I need, you know, people investing for me. I, I, I'm not that rich. I mean, I'm richer than Probably you, but, <laughs> uh, you know, like Michael Dell has a bunch of people working investing his money, right? I don't, I don't need that. Uh, and I, I never really made a lot of money at Apple. Uh, I'll tell you a story. This is the God's honest truth story. It's not too many people know, but I can just like when. When Steve Case started AOL, it was called quantum computing. And quantum computing was working with Apple Computer to create, basically, the Apple-owned version of AOL. So AOL was going to be an Apple product. Okay? And Steve Case was creating it for him. And one day, for some reason, Apple decided that it would no longer want the product. So it was basically terminating the contract with Steve and his group. I happened to meet with him that night. And as you can imagine, they were all bent out of shape because they had just lost their contract. And Apple was basically giving them the product back. And I told them that Apple just did you this humongous favor. Because that was a hardware company. They don't jack about selling software services. But they were all depressed. And so Steve said, all right, so we're going to go and you know, create our own thing and we're going to go to market ourselves. So why don't you, guy, why don't you do some consulting for us and some speaking in online conferences for us? At this time, I was no longer at Apple. So I said, fine, I'm mean, happy to help you. So for a few months, I did online conferences because I was recognizing the Macintosh community. So a lot of people would come to an online conference with me. And I was also giving them advice. And after about six months, you know, there weren't any more conferences to do, and they were well on their way, they weren't asking me for marketing advice. So then about two years later, I see Steve Case. And Steve Case says, uh, are we still paying you for your consulting? I said, no, I stopped that after a few months. And he said, are you, did we ever give you any stock? I said, no, but you know, I only did a few conferences, so you don't need to give me stock. I said, no, 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 I won't give you stock. Right, give me stock. <laughs> so Steve Case gave me 2,000 shares of stock at, I think, a penny each. Now, now 2,000 shares of stock, because of all the splits and splits and splits and splits that happened, 
turned out to be millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars. It paid for my house, it paid for my car, it paid for everything. So one interpretation of Guy's career is that for all the work he did at Apple, the evangelizing, the proselytization, the marketing, all the work he did at Apple, all the work he did in software companies, all the work he did in writing and speaking and all that, it was all basically for not very much. And it was because of the honor and the ethics and the kindness of Steve Jobs that I have achieved financial freedom. So the lesson there is, I don't know what the lesson is there. <laughs> the lesson is there is, if somebody offers you stock, take the stock. <laughs> you know, it's just, I, I thought about this a lot, you know, there's a... You're just shit ass lucky, is that what you're trying to say? I, yeah, I, maybe that's the lesson. The lesson is, it is better to be lucky than smart. <laughs> I have a choice. God said to me, guy, you can pick one, lucky or smart. Guess which one I would pick? I pick a lot. So, so you know, the message, you know, so, so you know, meanwhile, I was trying to optimize my career, right? Picking the right companies to work for and this and that and all that. And meanwhile, it comes down to Steve Case gave me 2,000 shares of stock. That, I, have, I have a little, um, I have a little temple in our house. Steve's picture, I mean, <laughs> God, there's Buddha, there's Steve. That's the Trinity. Um, so, so now you know that, you know, what calls me about all of this is that, in a sense, I'm telling you that I owe my success to a poor old graduate. <laughs> <laughs> um, what else? You're up here? Do you have a one graduate? I'm sorry? You're stuck here on the, on the stage with a penumbra. Yeah, but you're no Steve Case. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> yes? Um, why do you go from something so drastic like technology to venture capital? And what have you learned from Well, why did I go from technology to I mean, actually being an operator to become a venture capitalist? Right. Well, um, the answer is that I'm 51 years old. I no longer have the energy, the bandwidth, the health, the attention span, anything to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I don't want the pressure on me. I don't want to be dealing with a lot of people. I don't want to be killing myself. I have three children. There are four, 10, and 12. We're getting one more. And he's half a year old right now. Um, so I'm going to have a half a year, four-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old. That's my four, that's my portfolio. <laughs> that's my portfolio. That's the portfolio I care about. And so I have that portfolio. Now let's say that I was running Google or Yahoo. It would not be possible. One portfolio would have to go. I could either be traveling all over the world trying to make that company success, or I could be dealing with my four kids. I have consciously chosen to be with my four kids. And so, you know, a venture capital job is something that you do at the end of your career, not at the beginning. Theoretically, when you're a venture capitalist, you're the old dog, you've, you've done it, you know how to advise, and you want to advise the next generation, but you don't want to do it yourself. And that's mentally where I am. I will never, never run a company. Um, 
But I will add that you know, Guy lives his honor, and, and so you know, he's an honorable person. And that's the most important thing that you can be as a venture capitalist, is to use your honor to help others. What else? What else? Yes. Uh, you talked about uh, the qualitative versus the quantitative, uh, and that you actually realized that the qualitative thing was the hard part. I mean, what did you do when you realized that? Did you then start saying, I gotta learn more of that, and, and kind of yeah. in a certain way, or how did you go about that? Well, first I freaked out, <laughs> and then I um, I, I think the realization was that there's no shortcuts for that, and you just have to deal with it. I, I, it just takes time. It just takes practice. You know, I, I suppose it takes time to learn how to close the book or do an annual report, right? But and not like it takes management people. Uh, I found that to be the biggest challenge, and I, you know, I just. Even today, at this stage of my life, many, many young people ask me to mentor them. And I never say yes, because I have my four children. And also because I just, someplace deep in my wrong, I just don't have the adequate sort of bedside manner. You know, how are you? Let's talk about what's in your life, I just, I'm not that kind of guy. You know, it's like, fix it. You know, what do you want from my life? Fix it. So, so, I guess a failure is a soft person. That's what I say. Um, I, I just think it takes literally practice. But the first thing it takes is the realization that it is the hard part. Because once you realize it's the hard part, then you figure out you have to work on it. But many people, I think, are in denial. They think that, you know, I'm a good manager. And they're like clueless. They think they're a good manager and, and that, you know, their people are stupid because they don't believe them, they don't listen to them. It's, the soft part is so hard, it's so hard. That's why I encourage you. I, I used to, I used to, um, I used to hate group projects. So I don't know if you have group projects in your school, right? But I used to hate group projects. Like, I always felt like somebody else wasn't pulling their weight, or you know, why did I have to depend on the other person? I could just do it all myself faster and better than the other person, right? And then come to find out, when you're, when you're in business, everything is a group project. You cannot do things all alone. And so, you know, you guys, he may assign you group projects now, you probably hate it, but that's life. I mean, that's, that's how it's going to be. And uh, the solo entrepreneur is a myth. The solo entrepreneur is a myth. What else? Yes? What time are you reading this? Um, right now, well, okay. I read two kinds of when I am writing a book, I read non-fiction books of management because I'm looking for ideas to steal. <laughs> I'm not writing a book right now, so when I'm not writing a book, 
I basically read trash. <laughs> so I just finished a book by uh, David Baldacci about uh, a fake assassination of a president. Um, I'm reading a book which is not trash, and it's a very good nonfiction book called One Bullet Away. It's about a Dartmouth grad who decides to enlist in the Marines and how he joins the Marines and goes to Afghanistan. Um, but basically, I like to read books by Tom Clancy, Michael Crichton, uh, David Baldacci. Um, who else is in there? I mean, those kinds of books. I like books where people are getting killed and the bad guy is going to ultimately get waxed. Yes. Yes. Now, if you want to ask me what's any more cerebral, you ask what I was reading. If you had asked what I recommend you, completely different. So, as I'm assuming that you're all entrepreneurs, so if, if a group of entrepreneurs ask you, what books should I read? Books should I read? This is the list. Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. Uh, mastering. Mastering Innovation or something by, um, I think it's, I don't know his first name, his last name is Utterback, U-T-T-E-R-B-A-C-K, he's a professor at MIT. It's Mastering the Dynamics of Innovation, I think. Matthew, Matthew Utterback or something like that. Uh, so we have Jeffrey Moore, Kent Christian, Matthew Utterback. Uh, I would also, you may find this slightly bizarre, I would recommend call a book called If You Want to Write. This book is by Brenda Ulan, U-E-L-A-N-D. It is a, a writing teacher writing to her classroom, telling them how to write. And you may ask, what the hell does this have to do with entrepreneurship? Well, if you if you substitute the word entrepreneur for write, it would work. In other words, she's telling her class about not being shackled by people's estimation of how writing should be and what they are capable of doing. That writing is a form of self-expression and you should not be limited by what you've learned in the past and the limits that people have put on you and, and continue to stereotype you. It's about breaking free with writing. Entrepreneuring is just like that. You need to break free of the expectations of what people have you. So if you want to write. And the last book I would recommend is Uncommon Genius. Uncommon Genius is a book that examines the work of the MacArthur Award winners, uh, where you'll see you know, what makes these truly great people tick. So, so you have it there. So that's my, when I'm writing a book, I read books to rip them off. When I'm not writing a book, I read trash. And these are the books I would read if I were you, as entrepreneurs and students of entrepreneurship. So the question? Yes. Yeah, I <coughs> You would say a guy like the Peter before Steve Jobs came back. Say that again? <coughs> Why don't you say down with the Peter in the nineteen before Steve Jobs came back? Why did he say that? Because you kept the faithful. Oh. You kept the faithful yeah. uh, loyal. And uh, I'm wondering now, what's, what's the future of the Mac OS system, do you think? And is Apple, it seems to me that the iPod is saying Apple right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you yeah. know. I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in God. 
And one of the reasons why I believe in God is because in my career, I just could not come up with any other explanation for why Apple was still alive. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried every reason, and it came down to there must be a forever of God. We come to find out God loves digital music. <laughs> Further come to find out God believes you should pay 99 cents per child. <laughs> so the future of Apple, um, I am more optimistic about Apple now than ever because they're going to put Intel chips in, in uh, Macintoshes. And the reason why I like the idea of Intel chips in Macintoshes is twofold. One is, I own a 15-inch PowerBook. That 15-inch PowerBook, best case, gets me two hours of use on the battery. I also own an 11-inch Vio, Sony Vio. That sticking Sony Vio gets five hours of battery life. It boggles my mind. And I think it's because the Sony Vio has a much more efficient IBM chip. And if those efficient <coughs> chips were to go into Sony, uh, Macintosh PowerBooks, hallelujah, we have a PowerBook lasting five hours on the battery. So battery life has got to be better with Intel chips. Secondly, if, if you have a computer that has an Intel chipset in it and it's running Macintosh, well, guess what? By definition, it can also run Windows. Now, I don't know if it's true that you can run Windows and Macintosh simultaneously. But let's say that's not true. Let's say you boot it into a Macintosh, you run all the Macintosh software you like. Then for some strange reason, you need to run a Windows program. You reboot the machine into Windows and you run the Windows program. This is the holy grail of computing. It's not emulation anymore, right? Right now I have a Macintosh and it emulates Windows using virtual PC and it is a pig. It is a pig. It is like, you know, walking in boy. Okay. <laughs> so, in this world where there's a, a IBM chip in a Macintosh, you run Windows XP, you run Macintosh, maybe simultaneously, and it requires less battery power. Hallelujah! Praise God! And so, I, now, I think that a, a computer made by Apple will inherently always be two or three hundred dollars more. Because, frankly, it's better. And so, I don't know if all these Fortune 500 companies are going to say, oh yeah, for the greater flexibility, let's buy everybody Macintoshes. But at least now, in people's minds, you see the seed of doubt that, boy, if I buy a Macintosh, I can run Windows XP and Macintosh. If I buy Windows XP, I can run Windows XP. It's worth a couple hundred bucks more to have a better experience. If it's less than a couple hundred, if it's the same, Macintosh is going to kick butt. It's going to kick butt. That's my dream. That's my dream. It's interesting, you know, I haven't worked for Apple for seven years, but, for, but it's like, this is a cross I will bear for the rest of my life. Everybody always asks me about that. I don't, you know, they don't give me what, just so you know, what did your father? <laughs> he's operating on <laughs> So just so you know, when I when I want to buy a new Macintosh, I hope you don't think that Steve Jobs, FedEx, is one to my house in gratitude for all the work that I did for Apple. 
I go down to the Apple store where some punk who doesn't even care who I am goes and stand in line and sign in at the Genius Bar, and I pay full retail for everything that is in there. So, you know, what can I say? I bear the cross, but I don't get the company discount. <laughs> What do I think about Linux? Linux? Oh, Linux. You know, I think Linux is a good thing to say. Uh, it's a thorn in Microsoft's side. It is something that might prevent worldwide total domination. It's a good religious cause. Uh, the fact that many servers are running Linux instead of Windows does my heart good. Um, I think it's a good thing. But I don't think it's sort of a desktop application. Linux is a good thing. You need diversity. Yes? How do you see the software piracy technology or off-changing technology business? Well, if you're asking me, do I think that Sony is really clever by trying to make it so that you know they download spyware on you so you can rip a CD? I think that's the stupidest thing they ever did. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I guess, I hate copy protection schemes. I hate registration. I hate all that. It's not clear to me that we sell any more because of that. And you can punish the innocent because it's such a pain in the ass. Um, but I'm not in the software business anymore, so it's easy for me to say this. Uh, what saddens me about some of those pirates, you know, if you're smart enough to break all those things, you'll probably be smart enough to do some great engineering. It's a waste that you know you've decided that you know you're gonna leave a life of crime. Um, it's a waste of intellectual power. Um, but, um, what else? Yes? Well, you know, the argument that I used to hear constantly is that Hawaii is geographically between Asia and the United States. Except that, you know, we're not in Pan American Clippers anymore. We don't have to land here, right? Get on. I can get on a plane in San Francisco and land in Shanghai. Last time I checked, I didn't have to land in Honolulu. It stopped for two days. So the in the middle of the Pacific doesn't help. Um, I've also heard the theory that Hawaii had lots of big pipes, you know, full of full of uh, broadband potential. I don't buy that theory anymore either because. Every place has big pipes. So, so you know, if I were positioning Hawaii, I would focus on the not not so much the you know temperature, the climate, as much as this is a very very great place to live. That you don't have to sacrifice your family's well-being in order to make a good life. And I would, that would be my particular pitch to an MIT assistant professor in electrical engineering in February at 20 below degrees in Boston if I were trying to recruit him. Um, and I think that you, know, you have a bright, captive population that has enormous potential. And all you need to do is find some people to make that potential take off. It can be done. It can be done because 
Israel has done it. Israel has only 5 million people. And look at what Israel has accomplished in technology. So it can be done. Um, and that's sort of what I was doing. Uh, and we're going to have to uh, cut Guy off. And we, uh, uh, all the aviation had 6 o'clock classes, and I guess you got half an hour. Thanks very much. Thank you.